Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, and each week, my co-host, Dr. Trey Sertish, and I take some time to explore a particular dimension of our healthcare system. And this first season is themed all around what is wrong with healthcare as it relates to blocking the patient and physician relationship. And this week, we explore our payment system, and we titled the episode, How Do You Think Your Physician Should Be Paid? because there are a ton of uh, complexities involved in how we reimburse for physician services in our healthcare system. The way it's predominantly done now is called fee-for-service reimbursement. Your physician is paid a fee for providing a service, fee-for-service, and it's an incredibly sticky topic, and we did our very best to try to condense it. Each episode, Trey and I focus on providing material that is insightful based on the background that he and I have, but that is also actionable. And this was a particularly difficult episode with which to feel like we were we were being concise in our insights and giving you something as a listener that is actionable for you to take away from this. Thanks for giving us a chance to wade into what is a challenging topic and I hope you enjoy. Let's jump right in. Trey, something you and I have talked about a lot in different conversations. When we talk about fee-for-service medicine, I've got experience in the outpatient setting in, in terms of what the incentives encourage you to do, what the challenges are. But in terms of the fee-for-service medicine, I would argue now that we're decades into this system being well-established, the traditional fee-for-service structure is very damaging to patients mm-hmm. and to physicians because it it creates these really perverse incentives around how much can I squeeze into a 15 or 20 minute visit and things get missed and it makes it very difficult for all the things that need to get done for patients to get done and it makes it difficult if there are other physicians out there like you who feel like they want to be fully present who want Mm -hmm. to sit next to the patient and really connect we say, that's fine. That's wonderful. You absolutely need to do that. As long as you can fit it into a 20-minute visit, <laughs> as long as you can squeeze it into that time spot. And that's the thing to con- that contributes to physicians taking a lot of work home. It's because of how many visits they have to cram into a day. And that's the thing that contributes to patients who can't get in to see their physician in a, in a reasonable amount of time. And so that's something I definitely see on the outpatient uh, side. But in terms of how that works for an inpatient physician, how is that impacting you, if at all? For me, just speaking, I, I work at a large academic center, and largely speaking, academic centers are, or at least attempt to divorce their physicians from the typical fee-for-service system. That doesn't mean they're not affected by it, for reasons we'll discuss shortly. But they try not to associate directly that if I perform this service, I personally get paid this money. Instead, you perform a service, and then that service is billed, and that if that bill is collected, then the healthcare system accepts that payment. And then you're paid usually via salary like, like I am. And so if you kind of are following that logic, I still am impacted by fee-for-service to answer your question. It's just not directly. Because if I do more, if I provide more services, my healthcare system, my division, which is if you think about the group that I work with, makes more money and therefore it has more leverage and power within that healthcare system. 
And that doesn't mean that a large majority of inpatient care delivered in this country, which is not in academics, which is not from salaried physicians per se, that are delivered by physicians that are subject to direct fee-for-service issues. They may work for a group that they are personally a part of, but that group, again, directly pays them based on a proportion of how much they bill. And so right. there's, there's extreme pressure in those circumstances to see more. I would say just as much just as much pressure as the outpatient side to see, you know, 20 patients a day, 25 patients a day and coordinate all these things. It also, it bleeds into many other things which balloon the cost of healthcare, which is, okay, well, you get paid more uh, for how complex your care is. And somebody had to define somewhat arbitrarily, it's not purely arbitrary, but somewhat arbitrarily what, what makes something complex. So asking other doctors for help makes it more complex. Otherwise calling a consult, like saying like, oh, well, I have to do that. Well, if you are getting paid more because this patient's problem, which you could have managed on your own, but would be made more complex by calling someone else will pay you more. Well, then again, there's subtle incentives or maybe not so subtle incentives to call more consults, to call more help, right? Yep. To balloon the complexity of your patient in an attempt to ramp up their costs. And again, I don't think that for a large majority of physicians, this is uh, conscious. I don't think that there's malice. Perhaps there are some, but I don't, I don't think that's the case on even a like measurable minority of physicians. But yeah, I mean, there's just, there are many things contributing both in academics as well as in the private world. Yeah. If we assume, if we, take our initial hypothesis that good healthcare facilitates an effective relationship between patient and physician. There's nothing more core to what is breaking that relationship than the physician is not being paid to have a relationship with you. The physician is being paid to do something to you. That the incentive, if you're trying to have a relationship with the surgeon, the surgeon is not being paid to have a relationship with you. The surgeon is being paid to cut on you. Mm -hmm. And there are a ton of metrics around utilization and overutilization mm -hmm. in healthcare around. It, guess what? If you incentivize surgeries, you get surgeries. If you incentivize, you know, banging on someone's knee, you. People bang on knees. Mm -hmm. And that's really unfortunate because I, I think it starts to divorce how patients think about mm -hmm. uh, or how physicians think about patients into thinking of them as problems, thinking mm -hmm. of them as procedures, because that's where the incentives are aligned. And that is what the fee-for-service structure delivers. One of the big challenges that we had in my outpatient group was the fact that it was very challenging for patients to get support that did not equate to a visit, to a 20 or 30 minute block of time. You wanted to ask your doctor questions via patient portal. I have a small question. I just wanna shoot my doctor a text message or a patient portal message. Guess what? Almost every patient that's listening to this podcast has fairly poor experiences trying to message their physician. Why? Because your physician's not paid for that. Mm. There's no incentive for your physician to be good at, the physician is doing everything in their power sometimes unbeknownst to them, to fit you into a 20-minute slot that they can bill for because they can bill the insurance for that time. And it's easy to, to malign these insurance companies. The insurance companies are, are doing what they've been told to do. No one's forcing them to innovate, so they don't. There's ways, there's these Byzantine ways to bill for answering phone notes and answering physician or patient messages, but very, very few physicians actually do that. And so getting any sort of care outside of the exam room is 
incredibly difficult, and which also speaks to the underutilization of all of this technology that we have. I agree with everything that you're saying, and I'm just sitting here thinking because I think that many people, particularly patients, particularly sick patients, particularly sick, frustrated patients, would be yelling into their phone, into their screen, and saying like, but why are we so focused on getting paid? Why are doctors so focused on getting paid? Why isn't it enough to care for me? And I think about that a lot, and I'm saddened that there is this tension between those two things. It's sad to consider medicine a business, uh, to subject it to those things. Sure. I think every, yeah, that, that gets difficult because now we get into the frat. Mm-hmm. I don't think in our society we've been given a choice. It's been, I mean, I guess you can, you know, live off of the goodwill and charity of others, but if you're, you know, the, the medical debt alone that we ask our mm-hmm. physicians to incur, the, the whole structure sure. equates to we're going to have to have a transaction, even mm. if we're just bartering chickens. We're going to have to trade <laughs> something here for the yeah, goods being delivered. I agree. And Patrick, I think that brings us to a great next thing, which is like, well, then what alternatives exist, right? We've only yep. talked to this, but then possibly if we have time, what would we want, you know, yep. even if it doesn't exist? Yeah. So to reframe, I would tell either of my parents, when they complain about healthcare, I would say a ton of the challenges that you have in healthcare is that the healthcare rails are built to funnel you in a specific direction, which is the rails are built to funnel you into a billable event where the doctor can get paid for their time. And that, that means the doctor not taking phone calls from you. That means the doctor not taking text messages from you or portal messages from you, blocking as much of that as possible unintentionally, I would say, because the physician is spending eight hours a day in exam rooms where their time is getting valued, valued by nature of of that billable visit. And so the most interesting models to me are models where you're seeing people start to to think about that physician's time differently. So an example of that, a very simple example, that is concierge medicine or direct primary care, which is the physician may or may not take insurance and they just say, you're going to have a subscription for me as your as your physician. You're going to pay for some of these concierge physicians, it's $1,000 a year. And at a you know, thousand patients times $1,000, that's a phenomenal lifestyle for the physician. And the physician can then meet the patient on their terms. If the patients want to be seen via Zoom call, Patients can be seen via Zoom. If the patient wants a phone call at 7 o'clock at night, the physician has an incentive because the patient's a member and the patient, to some extent, is getting to dictate, hey, for this $1,000, I'm asking for something to be, I'm asking for you to meet me where I am because we don't have this third party, this insurer that's in the way dictating how the physician's going to get paid for whatever they do. I think those Things that facilitate a direct relationship with the patient are really intriguing to me, where the patient has a voice in how care is delivered for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Are there other models that, that have kind of come up briefly? I mean, we don't necessarily need to talk a lot about them. Yeah, it's something that's interesting in, for the older patients is these Medicare Advantage models. I'm very intrigued by what we're seeing from, from the government. One of the one of the few advantages to our the crippling amount of our overall GDP that in the United States that's getting spent 
on healthcare is that there is this enormous incentive to look at ways to bring costs down and make healthcare more efficient. And one of the experiments, mm -hmm. especially in the primary care world, is let's pay these primary care physicians a flat fee. So an example would be if, if I'm a 65-year-old patient on some of these Medicare Advantage plans, my primary care physician is going to get paid $50 a month for every month that I'm under their care, $600 a year. And for those $600 a year, that primary care physician is expected to quarterback my care, help me navigate to the right specialist, help me get all of my screenings done. And if it takes one visit, if it takes 15 visits, it's the same $600. It's a flat subscription. And what we've seen with these Medicare Advantage plans is, oh, guess what? All of a sudden now we have, we have dollars to help patients get transportation to their medical appointments. Whereas right now, if, if you can't make it to your medical appointment, your physician says, well, good luck. Hope you get that figured out because the physician is only getting paid if you show up to the medical appointment. And if the physician's getting paid, but it's dependent on you having these good outcomes, mm -hmm. then the physician now is says, well, now I have these incentives to do these other things that I didn't have, that, that I wasn't getting paid for. That $50 subscription, it's called a capitated payment. We have all these fancy terms for it. That is now meant to be funding all of these other activities. We can talk about social work. We can talk about a, an on-site pharmacist. We can talk about transportation. We all of a sudden can talk about a lot more of these things because if you have a pool of money that's meant to serve all of a patient's needs and not just we'll pay you if you have the patient in the exam room and only if you have the patient in the exam room, well, all of a sudden, it, this opens up exploring how to facilitate this relationship in different mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. So is this what I hear as, you know, value-based care? Yeah. So, yeah, the, it's one of the things that's under this value-based care umbrella. Value-based care is, is a, sticky, a sticky term because that gets into all of these other payment models. Value-based care is, is really a modifier on top of a traditional fee-for-service payment model, which essentially says if your physician hits certain agreed-to benchmarks, there's going to be a, these additional payments um, paid out in some way. And, and these value-based care was really the first big push to try to make healthcare more efficient and to try to rethink the incentives, which is to say, oh, we've built a model where if you do 10 surgeries, you get paid for 10 surgeries. Mm -hmm. And so guess what? We have a ton of surgeries. We have a ton of imaging. We have a ton of everything mm -hmm. in healthcare. We, we don't have a we don't have a quantity problem. We have plenty of quantity of healthcare mm -hmm. for everyone. We have a who's deciding what is value added and what isn't value added, especially when we in healthcare hold all the cards and the patient can't always advocate for themselves around what's appropriate or what's not appropriate. And when you say value added, what, what do you mean like in terms of how should a patient think about that when they read value added? Yeah, more efficient, more effective, very generic terms. I would tell the patient it's it's argued even within healthcare. Value-based care is a very frustrating term for a lot of people in healthcare because it's it's become this amorphous phrase that can kind of suit any particular discussion. But the the textbook definition was you know all of the sort of incentives that are being built into how physicians are reimbursed around this idea of 
we want there to be additional controls in place on top of this fee-for-service structure. And what that's evolved to is looking at, well, how can we rethink this payment infrastructure altogether? Mm-hmm. And that's some physicians leaving these fee-for-service contracts saying, I'm not going to take insurance. The patient can pay a membership fee, and I will meet the patient on their terms, and we'll build a very interesting practice model that way, concierge or direct primary care. Or it's some of these innovate, innovative healthcare insurance arrangements like Medicare Advantage, where you have these different payment incentives and payment structures. It gets very complicated. Anyone, you know, listener, if you've ever tried to purchase <laughs> health insurance all on your own and try to break down and understand all the different nuances and benefits, it is head splitting for for physicians, for your primary care physicians or your, your outpatient, it's head splitting for them as well. There's so much complexity in the system. It makes it really hard to break this down in a, in a digestible way, even in a podcast dedicated to trying to translate right. these things. So let's do our best. What I think we should, we should attempt to, how would we coach patients to pick their system, you know, or if they had to look through stuff. And I think we can, we can talk within uh, you know, specific existent systems, whether the Affordable Care Act plans or HMOs or like you're describing Medicare Advantage, I think that's less important. I think we should even just zoom out even more because you're right. Anytime I think most people are listening, whether they're patients or physicians are all these things, their eyes glaze over. They're just like, I don't really yeah. know. Like what? It's like going to pick a car and you're like, well, you want the sport package? You want the sport premium package? You want the music package? You want the print? And you're like, I don't, I mean, I don't understand, but it's all a lot of money. So it's important. The decision's important, but you're, you're sort of lost. And so I guess my charge to you is what do you, what would you want patients to understand when it comes to picking a system of healthcare that they could benefit the most from. And it's an opinion. It's not a fact. It's an opinion from me. Yeah. I think that <laughs> you mentioned this in our first episode. One of the big challenges in healthcare is the, the patients don't understand where the physician's coming from. The patients don't understand the physician incentives. And I think that what we need more of is for patients to, to know you and I hear this all the time at dinner tables when we mention to loved ones what we're doing. They say, well, why is it so? I, you know, I can never hear back from my doctor. And my simple answer is like, yeah, they're not paid to get back to you. Why would they, why would they do that? They're, they're working 10-hour days not having a fun life, and then they get home, and then if they have extra energy, they then get to pull up the patient, patient messaging portal and then respond to messages for an hour or two. You know, if you're on a traditional healthcare plan and you're with a, a traditional primary care physician, know that that is going to be their incentive. And that's something that you should understand as a patient. That is why it's so important to shop, as you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. for a physician that you feel like, because it, you will find actors out there that physicians that sometimes through no fault of their own end up in a really challenging practice situation where they, mm-hmm. they take care of a lot of patients, they're inundated with messages, the practice might be in disarray, and it is really difficult to get in with those physicians, and it's really difficult to get those physicians to respond to you on the portal. And that's a function of incentives. The physician is doing everything in their power to keep their schedule full. By keeping their schedule full, they're also inundated with all of these patient mm-hmm. portal messages and all of these other requests and faxes mm-hmm. coming in and documents to review. Mm-hmm. So if you can find a physician that has uh, room on their schedule, that's usually a good sign. 
And then understanding that that physician, if they're good about getting back to you on um, messages and if they have a good system for getting back to you on um, phone calls, usually with a medical assistant or something, that that is a blessing for you and not something that they are, they are getting paid uh, to do. That's extra time. That's charitable time that they're, that they're giving. If you have the chance in your area, if you, if you are someone that needs more off hours support for whatever reason, you're someone that wants a physician to take extra time for you, look into direct primary care, DPC, uh, practices or concierge practices if you have the means to do so. I think those are really interesting practice models. If you're someone that needs more support, that's what I would encourage. Be thoughtful on the sorts of plans and ask these questions. How are my providers getting uh, compensated or seek out providers that are telling you up front, I will give you better care. One Medical is an example that's the part of their patient advertising is saying with One Medical, one of these healthcare startups, you pay a $200 membership fee and part of what you get with that membership fee is the knowledge that your physician, what you're buying is your physician to take time out of their day to mm-hmm. answer your phone calls, answer your text messages and answer your your um, portal messages so that they can stay connected with you and what's going on when you're not physically with them in the clinic. That's a great answer. It's a great answer. How do you think about this? You know, it's easy to get my perspective and I know that, that I've had the benefit of being behind the scenes and and doing all the paper pushing. Do you have a, a bias or an opinion coming at this conversation in terms of how you, how you think about it? I probably have a bias. I'm going to, but I'd, I'd prefer not to think of it that way. I mean, I feel like what it, the, that bias is though, is I feel there are two fundamental camps when it comes to healthcare and there are obvious, this is oversimplification, but there are the provider camps and that includes everyone who's delivering care, but primarily the physician because, and, and as well as advanced practice providers, people who are submitting bills, people who are submitting bills for services rendered. Okay, and so that just happens to be the physician most commonly and so on. So we have that camp. All right. And then we have all the people who are contributing to the system. That could be legislators. That could be physicians who have turned over to administrators. That can be administrators purely that are not medically trained, you know, all that camp. And when I'm listening to your answer, I hear that, which makes sense because that's your background. When I hear value and and and, you know, value added and and all this stuff like that, I think that it makes sense based on your background. It also makes sense that guess who wrote all the rules that uh, went into a lot of that terminology, a lot of those systems, not this camp, right? Not the, not the doctors, generally mm-hmm. speaking, all right? Of course, they had, say, the American Medical Association and other physician-led societies, like they give their influence. But I have very strong opinions about this when I'm speaking with other physicians who are upset about the system is that, you know, the transformation of medicine over decades and decades, particularly now, has seen a vacuum of physician leadership and ceded that leadership over to legislators and administrators. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. But when you start to see, again, that gulf between patient and physician, you can't necessarily blame the outcome because the people who are making the rules and making the words and all like that, they may not be seeing physicians. They may not have never, or patients, they may not have never seen a patient and have no idea what that goes into. And they're asking for opinions and they're seeking them out and they're trying their best, but it can make it quite difficult. And so it doesn't surprise me. So my bias when I'm listening to all that 
is I think on a, on a, like a sort of both a micro and macro scale, but I think of it as quality. That's how physicians, I think, describe a lot of what you're talking about, which is not necessarily value added, which sounds like a business thing or a political thing, which I think makes a lot of physicians feel like either their eyes glaze over or they just recoil. They don't like that. Yeah. They don't like the business aspects of medicine, at least I think philosophically. Obviously, sure. a lot of physicians benefit. And you can see when you try and reform that system and you try and touch that fee for service thing, you know, it's almost become a third rail, you know, yeah. uh, in politics. And even though you'd ask physicians like, well, you know, do you want your quality to be based on how much you do? I think many physicians would be like, no, I would never do that. Like I would never, I would never do more surgery or see more patients just because I'm paid more because I just deliver the care that I need to deliver. And I think they genuinely believe that a large majority of them, there are bad actors like you talked about, but like, I think a, a majority of people feel that way, but incentives don't work like that. Right. Bias doesn't work like that. You really have to be purposeful about what's affecting you or lest you be manipulated by those things. And that's yep. natural. Yeah. The, the yeah. joke I make about it is everyone agrees that there's a ton of waste in <laughs> healthcare, but no one's volunteering for a pay cut. Right. Everyone is looking at everybody else around, you know, who, who needs to be taking the pay cut, because if you decrease right. decreasing cost, that's someone's right. paycheck. That's right. fewer dollars in the system. That's that's fewer jobs. Right. Someone has to take the the pay cut. We have to restructure it in some way. And I would argue everyone is getting served except for the patient. Everyone is getting served except for the patient and the relationship between the patient and the physician because we're not incentivizing the sorts of things. If you and I were talking about this off mm -hmm. offline, if you are someone that has a high complexity illness and there's and there's high control you and i talk about this control mm -hmm. spectrum which is to say the patient actually has a ton of agency in helping dictate their outcomes which which means the patient actually has a lot of homework mm -hmm. if you have a high control and high complexity illness you are in trouble in our system mm -hmm. because no one is getting paid to educate you no one is getting paid to make sure you do your homework no one is getting mm -hmm. paid to make sure that all the things you should be doing nights weekends and at home are actually happening except for on whatever questionnaire you have to take when you walk into the clinic which says well have you been have you been measuring your blood sugar appropriately? Have you been doing whatever you're supposed you're supposed to be doing appropriately? I absolutely. Oh, I absolutely have. <laughs> I will say, I agree with you entirely. There are movements, right? Medicare Advantage is one of them. Bundle payments is one of them. Like all the value-based care is one of them. But like even increasing towards just talking about quality, the science of quality, like how do we define it? How do we execute it? And so those movements are coming out of the realization that many physicians are, you know, recognizing the dissatisfaction of patients. I agree with you though, that there's no strict incentive to, to improve those outcomes for those high control, high complexity patients, even a, a vast majority of patients. But there are surrogate markers for these things that physicians are utilizing. And this is one of the things I try and, and educate patients when I'm talking to them about how to translate their physician, how to like understand them, is that what we are learning about is our strict outcomes. So like how, how you know, does this kill you? At what rate? How long are you in the hospital? How long are you in the ICU? How long, you know, notice these are very quantified things. There are quality, qualitative things, but they're harder to measure. And we infer that, okay, if you're on this medicine 
and it saves this much time or reduces your mortality or your rate of death by this much, then that's a quality medication. That's a quality medication. And lo and behold, you now have two things that are influencing physicians to try and seek quality, but may not be addressing what patients need, like we're talking about, which is number one, fee for service, right? Doing more, getting paid more. Number two is focused on outcomes. If my patient would just take this medicine it's proven you know they pull the paper up you know it's proven that if you take this medicine you know 12 percent of people die, die less you know again i'm just pulling that number out right and they they anchor to these two things but the patient might be yelling in their face like but i just want you to listen to me about right you know this these, thing. these are and the same like, people that are kicking patients <laughs> out after 20 minutes i don't get right. why my patients won't take their medications well how are you doing on your on giving classes to patients and providing literature. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, no. The patient can look that up on Dr. Google. The patient can take yeah. care of that. And then they're upset when the patient does do that and then comes back and says, well, I was looking this up and I saw this and then they kind of get riled like, well, like I'm the I'm the source of the information because I'm your doctor, which sure, I, I and, and I don't, again, I don't fault the physicians for struggling to meet their patient's needs in 20 minutes. That is not fair. Like we're talking about yeah. the system that demands something as complex as the patient physician relationship to be accomplished in 20 minutes is absurd. I mean, it's absurd. Think about how much time we give therapists with their patients Absolutely. in an hour and they never say, Oh, you're going to be one and done. You know, I mean, their model also yeah. incentivizes more visits, but I'm still saying that it, I think we could all agree that if your mother died or your wife is sick, or you are sick, then odds are 20 minutes, even an hour is not going to be enough. Right. Yeah, that's well said. And, and again, physicians just understanding what they're influenced by. That's that's what I try and educate about. That's what I try and practice by. And that's what we talk about all the time. And if you're influenced by fee-for-service in terms of how you get paid, and you're influenced by how sort of evidence works and how we're training physicians to think about diseases, then the product in the end is going to be someone who's focused on how many services can I cram into my day? How can I do what's going to pay me at the same time, focusing on very specific measurable outcomes that we perform research on that may not directly translate to quality. None of the, neither of these things translates to quality. They can, right? There are patients who are satisfied by the system. And, and I think we need to be open to that. But there are many who are not, and many may be satisfied, but are not, but are not being served by this model. It's almost you and I talk a lot about this hidden, hidden curriculum mm -hmm. notion, which is that you know what you don't, you you can't know what you don't know, and to some extent, you and I feel like everyone's suffering from a version of Stockholm syndrome around not being aware that there is there's just a deeper level of engagement people can be taking with their healthcare if they had a system around them that had the same incentives that they had. You speak to that with outcomes, but I would also say relationships. I, I don't mm -hmm. think enough mm -hmm. care providers value the patient related. That's not fair. And I'll get a fair amount of critique for that statement. I think we need more incentives to clearly art articulate and outline how valuable the relationship with the patient is and how aligned the prov all care providers should be with what the patient is going through in every step of the journey. 
you know, when, before you and I started this podcast, mm-hmm. I spoke to my mother, I spoke mm-hmm. to my mother-in-law mm-hmm. about their chronic, their journey with chronic illness. Neither of them got sufficient explanation when they started their chronic illness journey. Neither of them got sufficient mm-hmm. explanation mm-hmm. from their care providers. They were basically told, ask Dr. Google. It'll tell you what you need to know about this chronic illness that you're going through. It, that wasn't told, but it was sort of said, my job is to diagnose you. Good luck after that. I'll see you at your first follow-up visit, and we can talk about right. talk about things. And that's not to say these are bad providers. That's to say that there's this insidious quality to the way that the day is structured, the way mm-hmm. the practice is structured, that starts to carve away at the edges the fragile, valuable 10 to 20% that can make all the difference in these relationships that get carved away by these incentives. And then and, and I... I agree with your sentiment that saying, you know, that I'm paraphrasing that physicians don't value their, their patient relationship. I know, understand like why you get critique for that, but I would push and say that I think that that is the case because not, not to say that superficially, if you ask most doctors, what do they, do they value or are they satisfy and all these things with their, with the current relationship as they have it? I think they'd say yes, but then you'd ask them a different question and be like, well, are you satisfied with being a doctor? Are you satisfied with doing what you do? And I think that they may say yes, they may say no, it depends on their personality, but the national data mm-hmm. says that physicians are largely burning out at rates that are horrendous compared to most similarly professional you know, jobs. And that is a crisis. And I think that that in, that in itself is its own topic because, again, Translate Your Doctor is meant to help patients get the most out of their relationship. That goes both ways. If you can, you know, help your physician take better care of you, you'll get better care, but you'll also create this virtuous cycle by making that relationship better. Yeah. It seems frou-frou. It seems kind of soft and, and so on, but it's true. I mean, the same thing holds for teaching. When I'm instructing other instructors how to teach, it's like you have to lean into the relationship because it's going to be so validating. And, and the same thing holds for patients and physicians together. That's well said. And, that, and that's a really good segue. So next week we are mm-hmm. going to have a conversation mm-hmm. with one of our both of our dear friends, yeah. uh, Dr. Michelle McClellan, who practices in the Pacific Northwest. And she's in, she's at a system that has mm-hmm. a ton of more support for patients that provides a ton more resources for doctors to dock into to value and prioritize the relationship appropriately and yet she is even experiencing some of those things that you're talking about around something being missing and and she'll she can say that best in her own words and and, um, we're excited to get a chance to speak with her i hate this topic i really do it's so hard (laughs) to talk about it it's, it's it's valuable, and you and I enjoy talking about these things, but this is just such a quagmire and such a mess. You and I aren't going to, you know, we're not going to figure the silver bullet out to healthcare no, in this no. one conversation. But it, it is, we walk into every one of these conversations, these, these shows, thinking about, you know, how, how are we, listener, we, we think about you as the third person at a dinner table is what Trey and I talk about. It's like we're having a dinner table conversation. And this is one of those topics that's like, gosh, it's impossible to talk about at the dinner table because it's, it's, it's so sticky. Right. It's at the core of healthcare, And by nature, it, it messily touches every other thing in, in healthcare. And you and I come at it with a lot of biases sure. from our respective backgrounds. Hopefully, we, we gave 
a brief keyhole sized window mm-hmm. into how you and I think about it and helped helped expand some of the thinking and, and offering some insights to to you listener around this topic. Uh, as always, I'd like to end the episodes by encouraging people head to our website re- head to our website translateyourdoctor.com. Uh, check out our course catalog. We are starting to do we're starting our first medical seminars, what we're calling it virtual medical seminar in the next couple weeks. Check it out. We'd love for you to to see if that's something that you'd be interested in. We're doing it around heart failure. But as a whole, we're going to start introducing more chronic disease type content. If you're interested in keeping up with us, sign up for our mailing list. It's right there in the front of our website. Again, translateyourdoctor.com. Like and subscribe. Leave a comment. Five stars. All those great things. We very much appreciate the early support that we've received. And we have a ton of fun putting this show together. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. See you all.